And I want to begin reading in verse 3. And we're going to read down to verse 9. It's a familiar passage. It's a scripture that many of you will know and will have read and read many times, no doubt, the parable of the sower. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 3. And uh, the Lord, uh, we read, uh, spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. When he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth or no depth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell onto good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 18, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When any one heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And he becometh unfruitful. But he that receiveth seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. The parable of the sower is probably the best known of the parables that are contained within this chapter. The picture was certainly a familiar one to Jesus' hearers. Remember, he ministered primarily in a rural environment. His his neighbors and those to whom he spoke uh, would have been largely fishermen and farmers. And so this image of a farmer walking through his field with his sack across his chest, uh, lifting the seed out and spraying it in a semicircular fashion as he walked was one that people saw every day. So when the Lord says a sower went forth to sow, immediately the image was painted in the minds of his hearers. Indeed, it's possible even as he said that in the distance, there was just such a farmer out sowing the seed upon his uh, field. This was an object lesson. And we all love a good object lesson. That's why Sunday morning uh, we enjoy the children's talk. Whatever age you are, whether you're an adult or a child, uh, we enjoy those children's talk. In fact, to tell you the truth, I think the adults enjoy them more than the children uh, sometimes. Uh, I remember just a a few months ago I was uh, at a church preaching and uh, a lady had come out from another church and she said to me, uh, you know, what church she went to. and And I said, oh, I know your pastor very well. And uh, she says, uh, well, would you do me a favor? And I says, what is it you'd like me to do? And she says, would you speak to him and ask him if he would give children's talks? And I says, well, I says, are there children in the congregation? I says, who's it for? Is it for you or for them? And she says, both. (laughs) 
Well, she was a rather elderly lady, but she wanted to hear those children's talks because they're an object lesson. And, uh, and, you know, that's the beauty of a children's talk. A good, uh, a good children's talk mirrors the truth of God. It simplifies the truth of God. We saw that this morning uh, in Andrew's lesson with the boys and girls and the various scales that he brought out and showed and illustrated truth by. Uh, and we, so we do that in order to take maybe difficult concepts and simplify them for children and paint a picture. Uh, but Jesus' parables were somewhat different. Because they weren't intended to reveal the truth, they were intended to conceal the truth. You see, you've got to remember what we said last week, how that there were these folk who had rejected him, uh, who had decided that despite all the evidence that he wasn't the Messiah, uh, and they ultimately accused him of operating in the power of Satan. And, and at this point, their day of grace is done. Their opportunity has passed. And so if you notice there in verses 10 to 15, we'll touch on it again. We read it last week. The disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them, unto the people in parables? And he answered and said, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But Whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they uh, hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. So the Lord has been very clear. He's saying, look, the reason I'm teaching in parables here is so that these folks who uh, refuse truth time and time again, who've had ample opportunity to believe and have consistently rejected, well, I don't want them to hear anymore. I don't want them to understand anymore. They're now locked into condemnation. Uh, But for others, I want you to understand. And so the mystery of the kingdom is going to be opened up unto you. And so the first half of our reading was what the bulk of the people heard. A sower went forth to sow seeds, and some of his seed fell on the wayside, and some fell on stony ground, and some fell on thorny ground, and some fell on good ground. And there were probably people listening to that, and they thought, well, what kind of sermon is that? They probably walked away from that scene going, well, what was that all about? I don't understand. What kind of message is that to bring? You know, we've wasted our time uh, coming here to listen to this fellow. And even Jesus' disciples, as we've just read, were mystified by it. They said, well, why, why are you speaking to them in parables? And then he explains to them why, and then he also explains the parable. Now, what do we see here? Well, first of all, I want you to notice in verse 3, we see a Savior who's reaching out. A saviour who's reaching out. It says, and he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. You know, there's an interesting little passage 
in the book of Acts. In fact, you might want to turn there to Acts chapter 13 for a moment. And I want to refer to this to kind of illustrate what's going on here. You see, in Acts chapter 13, uh, there's, a, uh, there's an event, if you like, or there's a, an occurrence that seems to somehow uh, parallel with this parable. And uh, chapter 13 of Acts in verse, 40, uh, verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews, the all the multitudes, they were filled with envy and speak against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, this particular event occurs on Paul's first missionary journey. He's come to a city known as Antioch of Pisidia, and there he preaches a sermon in the synagogue of the Jews. In fact, for the larger part of this passage, that sermon is detailed, it's relayed to us. But we find that there comes this moment in time when uh, some folks come to Christ and they believe Paul's uh, message and they trust uh, the Lord and they accept the gospel and they're saved. But the Jews resented the fact that these people were now adhering to Paul and were not any longer buying into Judaism. And so they began to contradict the apostle and even to blaspheme his message. And so that Paul says to them, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we turn unto the Gentiles. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. In other words, he says, if you won't have it, he says, I'm required to go to the Jew first, but if you won't have it, listen, I'm going to give it to somebody else. I'm going to give the good news to somebody else. The message is going to pass you by. Now, that's the danger tonight. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you've been rejecting the gospel and rejecting the gospel and rejecting the gospel and you've heard it time and time and time again, maybe you were brought up in it. Maybe you came up in a Christian home. Maybe you went to Sunday school. Maybe you've been to gospel missions. Maybe you've read tracts and, and people have witnessed to you and people have prayed for you and people have played with you and you're still not saved. Well, there's a real, change, real chance that the Lord just pass you by. He'll just move on and say, well, we'll give this to somebody else. Somebody else will have opportunity. And that's essentially what happens in Matthew 13. These Pharisees have this mounting evidence that's pointing to Jesus as the deliverer of Israel, as the Savior, as the King of the Jews, and they say, wait, no, no, we're, we don't believe that. And they contradict it and they blaspheme just like the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. And they denied the truth of the gospel. And the Lord says, fine, we'll push on and we'll give it to somebody else. You see the same idea in the parable of the Great Supper. Let's look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14 tonight. Luke's Gospel chapter 14. Notice this parable. Then said he unto him, verse 16, 
Luke 14, verse 16. Then said he unto him, A certain man bade a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the blind and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done, as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be full may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. You see, the same thing happened. You get the picture in the parable. Here's the message of the gospel and it's being sent out. God has prepared a great meal. There's a marriage supper that each one is invited to. And he goes first to the Jewish people. And he says, now, I want you to come to this meal. I want you to enjoy the fruits of the kingdom. I want you to be blessed. I want you to have the deliverance I promised you. But they wouldn't come. And they made excuses as to why they wouldn't come. And one of them says, well, I've bought a piece of ground and I need to go and look at it. Who buys a piece of ground without first looking at it? Only a fool would do a thing like that. Another fellow says, well, I've got five new oxen and I have to prove them. Well, that's also foolish. You know, that's like buying a car and not test driving it. Never taking it for a run. Never feeling the, 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 the sense of the drive. And the third fellow, well, he makes no sense at all. He just says, I married a wife. Maybe he had the best excuse of the lot of them. I don't know. Maybe she wouldn't let him out or something. But they were excuses. They were excuses. And when the servant comes back, and says to the master, they don't want to come. They've all got these reasons. Here's the reasons why. This fellow's bought a piece of ground, and this fellow is trying his oxen, and this fellow's just got married, and they don't want to come. What's the Lord say? Fine, I'll move on to somebody else. You go out into the lanes of the city. You go out and invite others to come. Go and get the, the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And he goes and he gets those that he can find. And he says, still there's room. And the Lord says, go out into the highways. Go out into to the hedges and compel them to come in. You see, what I'm saying to you tonight is this. This may be your night. God the Holy Spirit comes to you and he says, come on son, you need to get in. You need to get in. You need to come tonight. You know what? I'm so glad for a saviour who reaches out to men. Who doesn't give up because others reject him. He continues on, casting his seed in pursuit of, uh, of his harvest. He's never discouraged. He's never deterred from his purpose. He continues constant and consistent. Isaiah says of him, he shall not feel nor be discouraged. The leadership of Israel wouldn't have him. So he took, uh, he looked to those who, uh, who were Gentiles and he brought the gospel to them. And he's reaching out to you tonight on that purpose. You see, if you're here and you're unsaved, understand that that 
that's what's going on in this kingdom age. This offer of the kingdom was given first to the Jewish people. Now the Lord is coming and he's offering it to you and I on his behalf as a preacher of the gospel. I'm casting out the seed. I'm throwing out the seed of the word. I'm throwing it everywhere I go, hoping and praying that it falls upon some fertile heart. And one of you tonight will say, that's for me. That's what I want. I want Jesus. You think about it. Right here in this little town of Points Pass, right here in this little village in South Armagh, you know, this little backwater in many respects, a place known very little outside of this immediately, immediate town land. And yet here I am and here you are and we're making that same appeal, casting out on our Savior's behalf that seed, that same seed. Think of the ways in which the Lord has tried to reach you. In meetings such as this, of course, but also in street meetings, when you see that preacher out on the street and he's preaching the gospel and he's handing out tracts and maybe you give him a wide berth. Oh no, that's, that's the Lord casting out the seed. Think about how many times you've heard the, heard the gospel in, in, in school assemblies and weddings and funerals and other, other occasions, baptisms. Maybe you've heard it proclaimed on television or radio or in books or maybe you've heard someone give a testimony. And Each time the Lord is casting out the seed, he's hoping it's going to fall on a heart that will receive it. You see the seed is being dispersed. Here's the love of Christ for your soul. Here's the Savior reaching out to you, casting his bread upon the waters and he's praying and seeking you to come. The old southern gospel hymn goes, Once my soul was astray from the heavenly way, I was wretched and blind as could be, but my Savior in love gave me peace from above when he reached down his hand for me. Oh, there's a Savior tonight who reaches out. And there's a seed tonight that regenerates the heart. Look in verse 4 of chapter 13 of Luke. It says, and when he sowed some seeds. And let's go down to verse 23 and see what that seed is. And he that receiveth the seed into the great ground is he that heareth the word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It says that we're born again by the word of God. You say, well, how do you know this seed is the word of God? It says so. He that received the seed into the ground is he that hears the word. The word of, my, the word of God, my friend, has the power to transform your life. As I've, as I've just referenced there in 1 Peter in chapter 1 and uh, verse 23, uh, Peter talks about that very thing. When he talks about the regeneration of the spirit that comes, the new birth that comes by virtue of the word, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. Listen to me, the word of God can change you tonight. I can't change you. What can I do to change you? I can't do anything to turn you around. I can't make the slightest difference in your life. But the gospel can. 
The gospel can change you. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. If you're in Christ tonight, you can be changed. The book of Ezekiel tells us that God is prepared to exchange your stony cold heart for a fleshly heart that loves him and and knows him and is born again of his spirit. Romans chapter 12 tells us that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You see, there's something about this book. There's something about this gospel. And there's certainly something about our Savior that has the power to change people. Now, I'm not talking about religion. Don't you think for one moment that I'm talking about religion? You know what religion does? Religion just makes sinners respectable. That's all it does. You have an example of that this week in the news. You have that lady, Paula Venels, who was heading up the post office when this terrible injustice took place against the sub-postmasters and mistresses. And she, she is an Anglican vicar at the time. She knew there was things going on that weren't right. She knew the system was corrupt. She knew there was a glitch in the computers. She knew that they were penalizing innocent people. And that she still continued with it. She went on with it. Now a righteous person would have immediately blew the whistle. A righteous person would have put the brake on. A righteous person would have said this isn't right before God. But a religious person is happy to wear the veneer of respectability. But underneath it all still beats the heart of a wicked sinner. I'm not offering you religion tonight. You say you're trying to get me to join this church. Are you kidding I can't even get the people who come to join. Listen. That's not what I'm about tonight. I'm not about making you a Baptist. Let me, hell's hell's full of Baptists. Any number of them. No, that's not what will change you tonight. I'm talking about real Christianity. I'm talking about something that brings radical, life-changing difference. I'm talking about something that will birth you from within, that will reconcile you to God, that will give you new life. Is that what you want tonight? A new life? You're sick of the old life? You're fed up with your old sins? You're fed up with all all the mucking about in the world? Well, listen, there's new life for you tonight. I'm talking about the kind of Christianity that makes a drunkard sober. I'm talking about the kind of Christianity that makes a a bad man a good man, that takes a bad husband and makes him a good husband, that takes a bad father and makes him a good father. That's the kind of Christianity I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the kind of doctrine that takes a dishonest person and makes him scrupulously honest. Listen to the testimony of Paul. This is the man who... Gave us much of our New Testament. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now here's the interesting part. Who was before, before I was a minister, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
Paul never forgot who he was. He never forgot what the Lord had done for him. I love that testimony. You see, by the world standards, Paul was a respectable religious person. Paul was a theological scholar. Paul was a member of the ruling body of of religion in Israel. He was a good man by the accounts of this world. A devout man who cared for his nation and cared for his people and cared for his religion. But that's not how God saw him. God saw him as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as injurious to his own children. And so the sower came with the seed and met him on the Damascus road one day. And Saul, as he was then, was gloriously saved. And his life was radically changed. God used that man and is using him even yet in all that he did with him. You see, that's the, that's the power of the gospel. You know, I, 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 could, I could identify with that easily. You know, a number of years ago, Hazel and I were on a cruise around the uh, South China Sea. We went on our 25th wedding anniversary. We sat at a table with six other people that we'd never met in our lives before. And we got to know these people. Um, one couple from Australia, one from Leeds, one, from, uh, one couple from South Africa. And, you know, it's always awkward when you're on in these situations because these people are total strangers to you. And now you've got to eat with them every night and have conversation with them, make some small talk. And it's not easy, is it? And so we're trying to get to know these folks and they're trying to get to know us. And, of course, the first thing people ask is, what do you do for a living? And so one guy, he ran a, he ran a, a, a industrial uniform company. The other guy, he ran a boxing, cardboard box company. And the guy from South Africa was a banker. He was a financier of some kind. And then, of course, they said to me, what do you do? This is when it gets exciting. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. Well, you could see all six of them wanted to throw themselves overboard. They're like, oh, no, we've drawn the short straw here. We've got landed with the pastor. And so every night they'd be drinking themselves silly, and I'd be sitting there with Hazel. We'd be having our Cokes or whatever. Sober as a judge. And I got along fine with them. Hazel did too. We had, a, we had a pleasant time with these people. They were nice people. And we chatted with them and we laughed with them. And I regaled them with stories of our childhood in Belfast and what have you. And they were fascinated by all of that, having no experience of the troubles and whatever. I told them some silly stories. And they were loving it all. And we were having a good time with them. And then this guy from South Africa says to me, you know, he says, David, this is right at the end of the trip. He says, I would have liked to have met you before you were a Christian. I says, really, why is that? He says, well, if you're this much fun now, I can't imagine how much fun you would have been with a drink in you. And I looked at him and I said, let me tell you something. You wouldn't have liked me with a drink in me. I said, you wouldn't have liked me with a drink in me. Because I was a rotten drunk. Foul-mouthed and abusive and nasty. A fool. I said, no, you wouldn't have liked me at all. And I want to, you know, I want to impress upon him that the person he liked wasn't the natural man, but it was the man that Christ had formed. That's who he liked. 
And so I could say as Paul, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord uh, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a, a drunkard and a thief and a liar and a blasphemer and a profane man and a foul mouthed man, a man who has stole the eye out of your head. Oh, but this, listen, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Maybe that's you tonight. You're all those things and maybe more. I want you to know there's mercy for you tonight. There's a, there's a seed that can save. There's a seed that can regenerate. Thank God for that life-giving seed. Thank God you can be saved uh, tonight and be saved for sure and have your life absolutely changed for the glory of God. There's a Savior who reaches out in this parable. There's a seed that regenerates in this parable, but I want you to notice there's soil that rejects in this parable. Let's go to Matthew 13 again and notice verses 5 through 7. Next, let's read verses 4 through 7. It says, And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. Now, we call this portion of Scripture the parable of the sword, but it's really the parable of the soils. There's a soil that rejects. Notice the soils here. They represent different souls. They represent different kinds of heart that respond to the gospel in different ways. But interestingly, and here's the thing that is interesting, three out of the four soils that are mentioned are not good soils. The wayside, the roadside, the stony ground with very little coverage of soil on it, and the thorny ground which chokes out the new plant. And so it's, to me that's interesting because there's a word of encouragement for you if you're, a, if you're a witnessing Christian. What's the Lord telling you here? He's telling you that not everybody you speak to about the gospel is going to be saved. In fact, he's telling you the majority of people will not be saved. He's telling you that most will reject. He's he's telling you that uh, although you do it in all sincerity and you're doing it as a Christian trying to help somebody, don't be surprised if you're rejected and don't be surprised if your message is rejected and don't be surprised if your Savior is rejected because that's the nature of of the game, if you like. The gospel will often end in rejection. The preaching of the gospel will often end in rejection and failure on the part of the the giver. But there's no shame in that for the Lord Jesus taught us that would be the case. Here's the thing. These parables come on the back of his own rejection. If they rejected him, well, they're going to reject you. They hated him, they're going to hate you. There's no difference. You know, the servant's not greater than the master. So there are different people here and, you know, there, there are people in, in our society that they have this notion that everybody's going to heaven. Maybe you're one of them. They have this notion that everybody who dies goes to heaven. All good dogs go to heaven. It's the idea. And I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that people who never open their Bibles 
who never darken the door of a church, who never will come to a place of worship such as this, expect to go to heaven when they die. In fact, to tell you the truth, I don't even know why they'd want to go to heaven. And I think that many people have been lulled into a false sense of security by a lying clergyman. They get to a funeral and you know full well that the fellow in the box was a rascal. You know full well what kind of character he was. You'll know if he was a drunkard. You'll know if he was a liar. You'll know if he was a gambler. You'll know if he was a drug dealer. You'll know whatever he was. And there the vicar will stand. There the the minister, the priest or whoever will stand and say, Oh, he's in heaven today. Liar. Absolute liar. Total gangster. I've been at funerals like that. Sometimes you want to go up and lift the lid to make sure you're at the right funeral. Have a look at the corpse, see if it's really him. Have you ever been to a funeral like that? Let me tell you something. That vicar can say, that that priest can say all the right words. He can use all the fancy phrases. He can read all the scriptures. He can quote poetry and he can say whatever he likes about you. He can say all kinds of nice things about you. God knows the truth about you. And God's unmoved by fancy words and flowery fickers. Here's the truth, friends. Of the four soils that are mentioned here, three are Christ rejecting. And and I want you to understand tonight that there are far more people in hell than are in heaven. Do you realize that? That hell has a greater population than heaven tonight. We've already encountered that truth in this book. Remember in chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Uh, But, uh, he says, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. When I would do door to door down south in Dublin, knock on the doors, people would say to us, you realize we're the biggest church in the world? No, that just makes you the biggest bus on the way to hell. Biggest church in the world. So what? She just said, few there be who'd find it. It's because you belong to the biggest church. Just because you attend with the biggest congregation. Or just because your church has the biggest building means nothing to God. What means something to God is what you do with Jesus. That's what means something to God. I want you to understand that tonight. In this parable, there's a 75% rejection of Christ opposed to 25% acceptance of Christ. There's a seed that falls on the wayside. You say, well, what does that mean? Verse 19 tells us, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Here's the broad road. This is the well-traveled road. Here the ground has been trampled underfoot where the majority of people walk and this individual is reluctant to walk against the the crowd to swim against the tide They're, they're just going with the flow just keeping their head down just getting on with everybody else and friend listen to me the crowd is going to hell there's a seed that falls upon stony ground look in verse 20 and we'll see what that means But he that receives the seed in the stony places, 
The same is the same that he that is, is sorry, the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it, at first receives it with joy, yet hath he not root in himself? But dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. This is the person who's realized that to be a Christian means to step off the wayside. That it requires separation from the mainstream of the world. And they know, they know in their hearts that if they do that, others are going to be unhappy with them. People are going to belittle them. People are going to make fun of them. You may say, well, listen, Pastor Moore, I'd be a Christian, but people will make fun of me. And I won't be invited to the parties. And they won't include me in their company. And I'm going to be the outcast. And, and, uh, and I won't belong. Well, I want to tell you tonight that's more than likely true. I'm not going to say to you that it isn't true. For the Bible tells us very clearly that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's the reality. But the Bible also says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Of course people might cast you off. Yes, you might be put outside their circle. You might become a figure of fun and a figure of ridicule. You might be criticized in the office or in the classroom or in your, in your street or in your family. You might suffer ridicule and some degree of discrimination and very low-level persecution. But here's the thing, friend. I'd rather go to heaven alone with Jesus than go to hell with the crowd. What about you tonight? Are you prepared to step away from the crowd? Are you prepared to say, I'll walk with Jesus? And then there's a seed that falls upon thorny ground. Verse 22 explains what that is. He also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. This is the person whose soul is sold on worldly success. This is the person who wants to get through this life with the most money and the, and the, and the flashiest possessions. Who believes that prosperity in this life is the purpose for living. You know, back in the 1980s, there was a saying that went this way, that uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. Well, let me tell you something. Here's the truth. He who dies with the most toys still dies and he never takes any of his toys with him. There's the truth. You think about another parable, the parable of the rich fool in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, a man who had amassed great wealth to the point that he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns. I'll build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided. You're just leaving it for somebody else. Everything you have, you're leaving for somebody else. I remember at one time being out and witnessing and went into this house, beautiful home, beautiful home in the south of England. You get into the south of England, whatever the value of your house is, you can probably multiply it by five and that's what it would be worth if you could move it to the south of England. 
Beautiful home. Walked up the drive past prestige cars, sports cars and, and high-class cars. Got to the top of the drive, beautiful yacht sitting at the top of the drive. Went up to the door, knocked the door. This fellow comes out to the door. I told him who I was, told him where I was from, told him what I was doing. I was there to share the gospel, invite him to a gospel mission. He just looked at me with complete pity, mingled with disdain. And he just looked at me like I was a piece of rubbish that blew in off the street. And he said this, What can you give me more than I already have? Well, you know what? When I die and he dies, we'll have the same amount of worldly goods. Nothing. Nothing. What a folly it is to turn aside the outstretched hand of the sower. What a mistake it is not to respond positively to the seed, to reject the good seed of his word in favor of the things of this world. It's a mistake. And it'll send your soul into a lost eternity. But of course there are those who do accept They're represented by the good soil. A saviour who reaches out, we've read of. A seed that regenerates, we've read of. A soil that rejects, and now a soil that receives. Look at verse 8. But other fell on the good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. And the explanation is given in verse 23 to the disciples. But he that receiveth the seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. You see, not everybody's rejecting Christ. You might be. But tonight, somewhere in this province, I guarantee you, somewhere in this land tonight, I can almost guarantee you, there is somebody somewhere who's going to trust the Savior. I would hope that somebody would be you tonight. That's what I would love. I would wish it were somebody here tonight and say, me, that's for me, Pastor. I'm going to receive the Savior. Here the Lord speaks about the mark of, of, true, of a true Christian. A true Christian produces fruit in his life. Both those verses teach the same thing. When the seed falls on good ground, it produces fruit to varying degrees, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. So what kind of fruit does it, does it produce? Well, let me give you some indication. It produces holiness. Desire to live right. It it produces Christian character. It produces good works. It produces concern for the lost. It produces a giving spirit. It produces a, a desire to worship. Now instead of avoiding church, guess what? I can't wait for church. I want to worship the Lord. It produces obedience to the word of God. You know what makes the difference between this kind of person and the others? It's how he receives the message of the gospel. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment in verse 13. And this is our last text for this evening. And we'll, we'll close in a moment or two. But I want you to think about what we're going to read and say here. And I want you to put yourself in this first and ask yourself, well, is that me? Is that me? Paul, writing to a gathering of new Christians in Thessalonica, He says this, for this cause also in verse 13 of chapter 2. 
For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. What are you thanking God for, Paul? Because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, you can't see this in the English, but I want you to understand what's happening in the underlying text of the Greek language. Because you read there in that verse the word received twice. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now, here's the thing. In the Greek language, those two words mean different things. In the first instance, when it says you receive the word of God, it simply means you heard it audibly. You heard what was said. But the second use of the word received means something different. It means to welcome with open arms. Now, let me tell you tonight. You're sitting here listening to me. You've heard it. Up here, you've heard it. You know what was said. But it's not about what you hear up here. It's not about what goes on in here. It's about opening your arms and receiving it and saying, that's for me. I'll have it. I'll welcome the Savior into my life. I'll take him in. I'm opening my heart to him. And a person is saved, not just by hearing the word of God, but by receiving the word of God, welcoming and accepting the Savior and the gospel with open arms. Now notice as this parable closes in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this in verse 9, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Sounds like a strange thing to say. Because everybody has ears, you know, for the, for the most of us, have ears. All of us here have ears. Who has ears to hear? Let him hear. Say, well, that's a dumb thing to say. Everybody has ears. But that's not what Jesus was saying. He's saying that hearing the gospel isn't just about listening to the message. It's about responding to the message. It's about answering to the message. It's about acting on something. Do you ever, do you ever see your kids and, you, and you're giving them instructions and, and you hear a mommy say, now, are you listening? Do you hear me? Of course they hear you. They're not deaf. That's not what you're saying, is it? What you're saying is, are you going to obey me? That's what you're really saying. And Jesus says, he that has ears, let him hear. He says, do you hear me? Are you listening? Pay attention. You need not just to take on board in your mind what's being said. You need to respond to it in your heart. You need to obey it by acknowledging your sin and trusting the sower of the seed who with his reached out hand is desirous that you should be saved. What about your heart tonight, friend? Listen, is it right with God? If you were to die tonight, if you were to die tonight, God forbid that would happen to any one of us. But if it should happen to you this evening, where will you spend eternity? Where's your soul going to go? Let me tell you something. Young people, you'll not be taking that mobile phone with you when you go. 
There'll be nobody to text when you pass from this scene of time into eternity. There'll be no TikTok and Instagram and all that malarkey. It's just you and God. Where will you spend eternity? Where's your soul going to go? Have you heard the gospel? And has it found a lodging place in your life? And have you actively believed? And is your life showing evidence of that? Come tonight. Come this stormy January night and put your trust in Jesus. You'll be glad that you did. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. We're